Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Sent for Peace, Holocaust Memorial Day. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 11th, 2010. This Sunday, April 11, the world commemorates Holocaust Memorial Day. It's a day when we honor the memory of the six million Jews who were systematically exterminated by the Nazis in 35 countries, and with them an additional three to four million people whom the Nazis deemed undesirable and inferior enemies of the state. Gays, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, Soviet prisoners of war, Slavic people, the physically and mentally disabled, and political dissidents of every sort. Holocaust Memorial Day is also a day to remember other mass murderers of the last hundred years. A million or more Armenians under the Turks, 800,000 more exported. Two million Cambodias under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Kurds under Saddam Hussein. Muslims, Croats, and ethnic Albanians under the Serbs. 30 million Chinese citizens under Mao. Nearly a million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus by extremist Hutus in Rwanda. And in Darfur, the Fur people, Zaghawa and Masalite peoples by the Janjaweed who were supported by the Sudanese government. In fact, the most underreported slaughter has taken place in the Democratic Republic of Congo, former Zaire, and involving at least nine other African nations. According to the International Rescue Committee from January 2008, conflict and humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo have taken the lives of an estimated 5.4 million people since 1998 and continue to leave as many as 45,000 dead every month. With a population of about 50 million people from 200 different ethnic groups, that's 10% of the Congolese population. A comparative figure for the United States would be 30 million deaths. I've learned two new words in my reading the last few months. Eliminationism and gender side. <clears throat> In his book, Worse Than War, Genocide, Elimination, and the Ongoing Assault on Humanity, Daniel Goldhagen describes how 127 to 175 million people have been eliminated in the last century. These people came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political groups. The vast majority of them were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and almost never with any substantial dissent. <clears throat> by Goldhagen's count, mass murder has deeply scarred countries home to 4.4 billion people nearly two-thirds of the world's population. 
Civilian deaths, he reminds us, outnumber military deaths by a factor of nine to one. And so the subtitle of his book, that eliminationism is worse than war. In a cover story on gender side, The Economist magazine asked the question, what happened to 100 million baby girls? This staggering death toll, in fact, was first reported way back in 1990 by the economist Armartya Sin. In their book, Half the Sky, Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun explore the many versions of violent oppression against women and girls, sex trafficking and forced prostitution, gender-based violence of all sorts, including honor killings and mass rape, maternal mortality. Parts of their book make for painful greeting with graphic accounts of bride burning, female genital mutilation, sexual selective abortions, foot binding, female infanticides, and interviews with teenage girls who work as prostitutes seven days a week, 15 hours a day. And so Christoph and Wudun conclude that gender side, in fact, might be the leading human rights issue of our day. After the chaos and violence of Holy Week, John describes how the followers of Jesus huddled in fear behind locked doors. Jesus then appeared among them and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The followers of Jesus were thus commissioned to proclaim God's peace to all the world to tell people that the creator of the cosmos wishes human health and wholeness for every person. Making peace, though, will never be easy. This is because Jesus is not only the Prince of Peace. In this week's epistle, we read that he's also, quote, the ruler of the kings of the earth, who inaugurated an alternate and deeply subversive reign and rule. In a world of gender side and eliminations, the interests of the state and those of Jesus clash and collide. And so Jesus in the epistle for this week was also the stone the builders rejected and a rock of offense for wishing God's peace to every person. The same is also true of his disciples. John wrote the book of Revelation from political banishment to the rocky island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, Revelation 1.9. He excoriates the city of Rome as Babylon the Great and the mother of prostitutes, the city of power. John pictures Rome as the stage where the human drama unfolds, as he puts it in chapter 6.15, among the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. And in another reading for this week, Peter and the apostles were jailed after teaching and preaching peace in the name of Jesus. 
insisting, as they said in their famous words, we must obey God rather than man. Consider then the implication of these two lectionary texts that we must obey God rather than men and that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. If Jesus is king and lord over all earthly rulers, then the Roman Caesar was decidedly not lord. Despite its claim that the Roman state was divine and its cult of imperial worship, Christians should thus never confuse the relative claim to render to Caesar what is Caesar's with the absolute and unconditional claim to render to God what is God's. Sadly enough, Christians have mimicked Caesar and slaughtered people. But not everyone. Many believers have preached peace to all the world. In 1934, the Barman Declaration repudiated the nationalism and anti-Semitism of the German Christian movement in its appeal to the Bible to support the Nazis. And I quote, We reject the false doctrine that beyond its limited commission, the state should and could become the sole and total order of human life and so fulfill the vocation of the church as well. Capitulating to the Nazi status quo was unacceptable to Germany's confessing church. At the instigation of Frank Chicane, a black Pentecostal pastor, back in 1985, more than 150 clergy from 20 denominations drafted the Kairos document to protest South African apartheid. It disavowed state theology that is simply the justification of the status quo, its racism, capitalism, and totalitarianism, which blesses injustices, canonizes the will of the powerful, and reduces the poor to passivity, obedience, and apathy. The Kairos document also critiques so-called church theology, which in a limited, guarded, and cautious way was only superficially critical of apartheid. And then in July 2003, the Dominican nuns Ardeth Platt, Carol Gilbert, and Jackie Hudson, members of a peace community in Baltimore called Jonah House that was founded by the dissident priest Daniel Berrigan, were sentenced to 34 months each in federal prison for sabotaging the national defense and damaging government property. They had protested nuclear weapons by smearing a cross on a Minuteman silo with their own blood and pounding on it with hammers. By following in the footsteps of the radical peace activist Berrigan, a man who was once on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, Platt Hudson and Gilbert could have guessed their fate. It was Berrigan, after all, who was once asked how many times he had been jailed for the gospel of peace, to which he replied, not enough. And for further reflection this week, we've posted the peace prayer 
of St. Francis. We don't know that the author of this classic prayer was actually St. Francis, and it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to him. By one account, the peace prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But it certainly emulates his longing to be an instrument of peace, reconciliation, and redemption in our world. The Peace Prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. For books this week, I review Andre Agassi, Open, an Autobiography, New York, Knopf, 2009, 388 pages. Many people remember Andre Agassi as one of the greatest tennis players ever. Across 29 years of competition, he won 869 matches, placing him fifth on the all-time list for wins. But what most people don't know, and what his candid autobiography reveals, is that he hated tennis from the beginning. He had good reasons, too. Agassiz's father, a former Olympic boxer, epitomized the tyrannical father who was physically and psychologically abusive, firing tennis balls at 110 miles an hour at his little boy from a machine that the family called the Dragon. When the son faltered, the father ranted and screamed. This contradiction, writes Agassiz, between what I want to do and what I actually do feels like the core of my life. While many people also remember Agassiz as the bad boy of Tentus, flaunting his colored mohawks and pierced ears, it's easy to empathize with him when he writes that he spent half his life, quote, as a stranger to myself. In this book, we catch a glimpse of him trying to solve the calculus of his psyche. That cannot have been an easy task. His father determined that if his little boy hit 2,500 balls a day from the dragon, he'd hit 17,500 balls a week, making about a million balls a year. When Agassiz reached the seventh grade, his father shipped him from his home in Las Vegas to a tennis boarding school in Florida. It might have been the one place Agassiz hated even more than his father's drills. Naturally, as a normal human being, the young teenager internalized and then acted out his father's rage and violence. He was such a misfit that he quit the tennis school forever, 
at the end of the eighth grade and never went back for further schooling. Agassiz is lucky that by age 16 he was good enough to turn pro and make millions. The day after he turned pro, Nike came calling. He was also lucky to form a team around him that kept him pointed in the right direction, including his older brother Philly, a boyhood best friend Perry, a surrogate father named Gil who was his trainer, a pastor, and several coaches. As you would expect, Agassiz's autobiography catalogs many of his memorable matches, the many famous people he met, Barbara Streisand, for example, and married, Brooke Shields and Steffi Graf, and also his drug abuse. But this story has a good ending, unlike so many stories of sports stars. In 2001, Agassiz and his wife, Steffi Graf, opened the Andre Agassiz College Preparatory Academy in his hometown of Las Vegas. Since then, he's raised $85 million for the school to serve underprivileged children. Not bad for a guy who never went to high school. The title of the book, Open, an Autobiography, by Andre Agassi. For film this week, I review No Impact Man from the year 2009. First there was the obligatory blog, then print and television coverage all around the world. A book, and now the film. All documenting Colin Bevan's year-long project to live in such a way as to have zero impact on the environment. He called himself No Impact Man which, as you might believe, led to charges of eco-sanctimony, delusion, self-promotion, and even deceit. Beaven and his wife Michelle, a high fructose and caffeine junkie by her own admission, live in Manhattan, but that didn't stop them from shedding possessions, eliminating all packaged products, replacing toilet paper with rags, using bikes instead of powered transport, walking the stairs instead of riding the elevator, and lighting candles when they shut off their electricity. Yes, you can even compost in a tiny urban apartment. Despite the many charges that this was little more than a stunt by a zealot, I was reminded that in our culture of consumption, we could all do more to live in more earth-friendly ways. For a good critique of Beaven and his project, see Elizabeth Colbert's article in the New Yorker magazine, Green Like Me. No Impact Man, from the year 2009. And finally, in the wake of Easter, we've for poetry, we posted a poem by Denise Levertov, 1923-1997. The title of her poem is Icon, The Harrowing of Hell. Down through the tomb's inward arch, he has shouldered out into limbo to gather them, dazed from dreamless slumber. The merciful dead, the prophets, 
the innocents just his own age, and those outnumbered others waiting here unaware. In an endless void he is ending now, stooping to tug at their hands, to pull them from their sarcophagi, dazzled, almost unwilling. Didymus, neighbor in death, Golgotha dust still streaked on the dried sweat of his body no one had washed and anointed is here. For sequence is not known in limbo. The promise given from cross to cross at noon arches beyond sunset and dawn. All these he will swiftly lead to the paradise road. They are safe. That done, there must take place that struggle no human presumes to picture. Living, dying, descending to rescue the just from the shadow, were lesser travails than this. To break through earth and stone of the faithless world back to the cold sepulchral, tear-stained stifling shroud. To break from them back into breath and heartbeat, and walk the world again, closed into days and weeks again. Wounds of his anguish open, in spirit streaming through every cell of flesh, so that if mortal sight could bear to perceive it, it would be seen his mortal flesh was lit from within, now and aching for home. He must return, first in divine patience, and know hunger again, and give to humble friends the joy of giving him food, fish in a honeycomb. The title of the poem, Icon, the Harrowing of Hell, by Denise Levertoff. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 11th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.